Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 today. Verses 8 through 12 of Genesis chapter 49. The title of our message is, The King We All Need. The King We All Need. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. I'm going to read... Uh, let's focus our attention on this word of God. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am in no way, shape, or form worthy to read your word and then even seek to explain it. Father, we are not worthy to have your word and to be instructed by it, but we praise you for it. God, with humble hearts, Lord, um, with you taking away every, every ounce of pride in us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in this moment through your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of us woke up this morning saying, I need a king. I need a king today. Probably not many of us. Probably not many of us. I knew that I was going to ask you that uh, when I woke up this morning. And I still don't think that was the first thing that is, was on my mind. If I'm honest, I, don't, I didn't wake up saying, I need a king today. Well, why is that? Why wouldn't we wake up with that on our mind? One re- reason might be the type of government that we have grown accustomed to. We don't have a king in our governmental system, and I think we would all agree that we'd like to keep it that way. We don't have a desire to crown anyone as king of, of our country, this earthly country here. But another reason the need for a king might not be at the forefront of our minds uh, goes much deeper than any governmental system that we've grown accustomed to. This reason reaches very, very deep into the human heart. We don't want a king because that would mean we don't get to be king or queen. At the very heart of it, that's why we don't want a king, because we want to be king. And if there is someone else who is king, then that means we're not the king and queen. When you have a king, it means you are in the role of subject or servant of that king. When you have a king, it means you don't get to make the rules. Instead, your role is to obey the rules that are set down, laid down by the one who is the king. When you have a king, it means that you don't get to enforce those rules the way you want to enforce them or whenever um, you want to enforce them or when you don't want to enforce them. You don't have to enforce them. No, that's not the way it works when when. Someone else is the king. You are at the mercy of the king when you fall short of obeying those rules. Simply put, 
Church, when you have a king, you're not in charge anymore. When I have a king, I'm not in charge anymore. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like to surrender that control of our lives to anyone else. Deep down, we want to be our own kings and queens. And we think, here's what's really scary about it, we think we would be good at it. We think we would be good at being the kings and queens of Not only our lives, but often we think, hey, I would know what to do when it comes to the whole world. That's a scary thing, but sometimes we think that way. But there's a problem with that line of thinking. There's a reason that's a scary way to think. We are deceiving ourselves if we think we should be our own kings and queens. And let me tell you why. Number one, we have an enemy that is too powerful for us to defeat on our own. We have an enemy that is too powerful for us to defeat on our own. Let me give you another reason. We have a limited endurance to rule because of death's mastery over us. And and number three, we have a built-in inability, not ability, but inability to provide peaceful abundance because of indwelling wickedness in our hearts that promotes disunity and destruction. Let me put those reasons another way. I'll shorten them up a little bit. If you and I were king or queen of this world, number one, our Kingdom would be conquered by an enemy. Number two, our reign would be cut off by our death. And number three, our rule would be compromised by our wickedness. Let me say it even more simply. Let me just give you three words. Why would you and I make terrible kings or queens? Number one, because of Satan. Number two, because of death. And number three, because of sin. And what makes those even more of a problem is that you and I are unable to overcome, to defeat, to conquer these three. Satan, death, and sin. So what this means is that we desperately need a king. But not just any king. We need a king who can conquer Satan, death, and sin. And rescue us from the clutches of these enemies. And set up a kingdom that is eternally protected and blessed. And here's another truth. Because everyone in this world is in the same boat. Everyone in this world needs this king. Whether they realize it or not. If there is a king who can conquer Satan, death, and sin, then that church is the king that we all need. But does this king exist? And if so, who is he? Church, you know the answer to that question. The good news is yes, he does exist. This king does exist and he has been revealed to us and we can know him and be rescued by him and live under his powerful and gracious rule forever. Genesis chapter 49 verses 8 through 12. These five verses teach us this church that God's promise of salvation centers upon a global king. God's promise of salvation centers upon a global king. We're in the final chapters of Genesis and as we study these final chapters, we're seeing some big truths rise to the surface regarding God's promise of salvation. Just think back for a moment. In chapters 46 and 47, we saw that God's promise of salvation calls for the fate of His people. Last week when we looked at chapter 48 and chapter 49 as a whole, we learned that God's promise of salvation comes as an undeserved blessing. And today when we focus in on these five verses of chapter 49, we learn that God's promise of salvation is centered upon a global king. And always we want to consider the context. So let me give you a one-sentence summary of the book of Genesis so far. 
So far in the book of Genesis, God is at work to fulfill his promise of a deliverer by ensuring the preservation of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob family tree, which is the line through which the promised offspring will come, bringing worldwide blessing. That's the that's context of Genesis where we're at. Let's look at the immediate context of these verses. In the immediate context, Jacob, whose name is also Israel, is now on his deathbed. He's gathered his 12 sons who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. He's gathered them to his bedside to pass on the family blessing. And we looked at that from a big picture perspective last week. And as we ended last week, we briefly saw that salvation blessings are accomplished through God's promise king. And that king is described to us in verses 8 through 12 of Genesis chapter 49. In these verses, in those five verses, Jacob is giving his fourth son, Judah, his portion of the family blessing. And his blessing stands out from the rest, both in its length and especially in its content. Verse 10 tells us this. If you look at verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. We pointed out these words last week, scepter and ruler staff, that signifies that Judah's tribe is going to be a royal tribe. And since Judah dies without ever becoming a king, we know these verses must be pointing to a future king. A king is coming from the line of Judah, and he wouldn't just be any king, he's going to be the king of all kings. And as we read the rest of God's word, we come to learn that Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, is this king that is promised here in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Today, I want us to really land the plane in these five verses. I want us to get her out of that plane like we're on an exploration. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look and see everything we can see to, to, to learn um, in, in these five verses and just examine what's there. And I think we're going to be blessed um, if we pay close attention to it. We're going to see that Jesus is the promised king. And not only is he the king of all kings, but church, he is the king that we all desperately need. I'm going to summarize this, these five verses, this description of the coming king, because there's a lot here. I'm going to summarize it by giving you three statements, okay? And the first statement about this king is this. King Jesus is the victorious conqueror of the enemy. One of the first things we learn in this passage about this coming king, who we know is Jesus, is that King Jesus is the victorious conqueror of the enemy. One of the main responsibilities of a king is to protect the kingdom from any enemies. A good king builds up the army, supplies the army with weapons, builds and maintains a wall or fortresses of some sort, and has the troops ready courageously. He courageously leads the troops into battle, and he wins. He defeats the enemy. A good king wins the battle. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So verse 8 reveals to us that this coming king will have enemies. Not everybody's going to like him. He will be at war with his enemies. He's not just going to back down. He's going to go fight. And he will defeat his enemies. And that's what it means for his hand to be on the neck of his enemies. That means he's the victor. It means he's won the battle. And his victory will demand the respect of his brothers. Eventually, the brothers would bow to Judah's offspring. We've seen them bow to Joseph, but eventually they're going to bow to Judah's offspring because Judah's offspring would be the conquering king. And then if you'll look at verse 9, that next verse there. 
Verse 9 continues painting this picture of a victorious warrior, but we get this other analogy, and it's the analogy of a, of a lion. Of a lion. Look at verse 9. Judah's, Judah, excuse me, is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? It's a beautiful picture, it's a powerful picture, it's a mighty, ferocious picture. Verse 9 gives us a picture of a lion who has returned from killing his prey, eating his prey, and then he lies down to rest in victory, but is still ready to pounce on anyone who comes too close. Right. What's the text say? Who shall dare rouse him? No one. No one. Again, it's a picture of powerful victory. Church, this is no weak offspring who is coming from Judah, but a mighty warrior, a victorious conqueror of his enemies. And this falls right in line with what God said would happen all the way back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, God's first curse was directed toward that nasty serpent, right? God's first curse was directed toward the serpent. God said, because he's speaking to the serpent, God said, because you have done this. Well, what had the serpent, what had the enemy of God done? He had deceived humanity into rebelling against God. In effect, he had launched an attack upon God's good creation and has taken as his captives the prize of God's creation, those humans created in the very image of God. And so in response, God goes to battle. He curses the serpent. He says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then God made this promise. He said, I will put enmity. That means hatred, war between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in effect, what God was promising all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 was that there would be war between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and his offspring. But in the end, the offspring of the the woman would defeat the offspring of the serpent, would defeat the serpent, would defeat the enemy. And so then we skip from Genesis 3 all the way towards the, to the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, and this promise of a coming king, what we see is simply a continuation of that same promise made back in chapter 3. The offspring of the woman will be this mighty warrior, this lion of the tribe of Judah, who victoriously conquers the enemy. God's enemy, our enemy, that ancient serpent. Which means that this coming king will be able to do what you and I cannot do. We have an enemy that is too powerful for us to defeat on our own. Maybe today you're trying to defeat that enemy on your own in your own life. But friend, I want to tell you, you never will be able to. You can't. He's too powerful of an enemy for you, but praise the Lord. He's not too powerful an enemy for the Lord. He's not too powerful an enemy for this coming king that's spoken of in Genesis chapter 49. You and I are held captive by Satan with no hope of rescue, no hope of escape, unless this mighty king, this warrior comes and defeats the enemy on our behalf. And the good news, church, is that now we're going to jump way ahead in the biblical storyline. The good news is that when Jesus walked out of the tomb on that Sunday morning, after having paid the price for our sins through his death on the cross, the enemy, the serpent of Eden, Satan, had been conquered once and for all. And scripture tells us that one day King Jesus is coming back and he's going to bind up Satan and he's going to throw him 
come to where he belongs into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That's King Jesus. And that's what he's doing with our enemy. And this truth, church, has incredible impact on our lives right now. It's not just that it gives us hope for a future one day where Satan is bound and he doesn't tempt us anymore, but it gives us hope right now. Let me ask you this. Is there a particular sin that you you are struggling with in your life today? Most of us should probably say yes to that. What is that sin? Think about it. Does it feel like Satan perhaps has the upper hand when it comes to that area of your life? Are you, are you just on the verge of saying, you know what? I can't I can't fight against this temptation anymore. I'm just going to give in. Uh, I, I can't do it. I want you to remember King Jesus has his hand on the neck of the enemy. Think about that. And he's a lion at that. That sin has no power over you. If you belong to King Jesus, Jesus is choking out the enemy, which means he's choking out that sin in your life as you live in submission to him. No, you can't do it, but Jesus can. Find hope in that. Find hope. Find endurance for the struggle against sin as we fight against sin in our lives. We can be victorious over the enemy and the sin he tempts us to commit because King Jesus is the victorious conqueror of the enemy. Jesus, church, is the king that we all need. Let me give you a second statement uh, about this king, this Jesus who we worship as king. Number two, King Jesus is the eternal king of the nations. King Jesus is the eternal king of the nations. Remember, the first problem we said of us being the king or queen was our inability to conquer the enemy. The second problem was the reality that our reign would be cut short by death. And so verse 10 continues this good news. This coming king would reign forever. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. First, we notice once again, I'll point this out one more time. We notice the royal language of scepter and ruler staff. This coming king would not merely be a, a, a mighty warrior, a, a kind of soldier on the battlefield, but this soldier would be the king. He would also be king. Victorious king. Second, notice the length of his rule and reign. How long would he be the king? The answer is forever. Note, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, Judah is going to be the royal line forever and ever. And as we read ahead in God's word, we learn that kings did, in fact, come from Judah. Think about King David. Think about King Solomon. They came from the line of Judah. After Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom, guess what, was known as Judah, you know, this Judah, right? And, and, and so there continue to be kings um, even after the, the nation split coming from the line of Judah. But one of the problems was that they all died, just like you and I will die. And yet God is promising here in Genesis chapter 49 that, that he, this king would of Judah, would uh, coming from Judah, would reign forever. Now, we could say, well, does that mean that there would just be an eternal succession of kings just coming from the line of Judah forever and ever? There'd be a king and he died, another king and he died, another king and he died, another king and he died, just forever and ever and ever off into eternity? No, that's not what this means. 
Notice the singular language here. There would be a particular king who would come and reign forever. Look at the, look at the, the, the grammar used here. You, his, him, he. There is one king coming. Now someone might say, maybe he's talking about Judah here. Maybe God is talking about uh, Judah, Jacob's fourth son, that Judah is going to be this king forever. But well, Judah's the same boat as David and Solomon and all the other kings. Judah died. He died and, and, and he stayed dead, just like David and Solomon and all of their descendants. But church, there was one descendant from Judah who he died as well. But guess what? Unlike all the rest, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Jesus, whose earthly lineage connected him to the tribe of Judah, died and then he rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, Jesus showed that he could actually fulfill this. He could be a king who would reign forever and ever and ever. He, he was defeating not only Satan in his resurrection, but he was defeating the enemy of death itself. Jesus can reign forever because he overcome death. And guess what? That means Jesus can do something that you and I can't do. He, he has done something that you and I would never be able to do. We would have a limited endurance to our rule if we were king or queen because of death's mastery over us, but not Jesus. Death was no match for Jesus. Jesus held and will forever hold mastery over death. And so there is no limitation, no limitation to the endurance of his rule and reign. He can and will reign forever. Not only will the endurance of his reign last forever, but notice the scope how, like, how, over how much will he reign? Church, we see that his reign will be global. Look at verse 10. It ends with these words. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You've got to pay close attention not only just to the, the words, but even to the letters in the words. Not just the people, but the peoples with an S on the end. Many kings came from Judah, but none of them ever reigned over all the peoples of the world. Except for that one king who conquered death. Jesus, the king of kings. This theme of the nations, one of the things I hope you've noticed as we studied through Genesis, this theme of the nations has consistently surfaced throughout Genesis. In Genesis 10, we read and studied the table of nations coming from Noah and his sons. In Genesis 11, we learned how those nations came to be divided and, and became distinct peoples based on their languages. When God confused their language, we know that the story of the tower at Babel. And then in chapter 12, we saw that God's covenant to Abraham included a promise to bless all of the families, all of the nations of the earth through his offspring. And now we see that the way God is going to bless these nations is by taking those nations long divided. Think about the nations in our world. These nations long divided from one another. And he's going to he's going to unite them into one kingdom under the rule of this promised kingdom of nations, under his rule, under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Many peoples, many tribes, many nations, many languages, one king overall. Isaiah prophesied of a coming king who would be, quote, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of King David and descended from the line of Judah. And so there in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah prophesied this concerning this king who would be descended from Jesse and from Judah. Uh, Isaiah prophesied in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, 
Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Church, Jesus came not just for the nation of Israel uh, that we see being formed here at the end of uh, uh, beginning to take shape here at the end of Genesis. He didn't just come for our nation or any other singular nation. He came for the nations. He is king of all kings. His reign is both eternal and global. And that's good news for us because guess what? We are the peoples. We belong to those nations. If Jesus didn't come for the nations, we would be left out of the promise of salvation. But because the king did come for the nations, then we get to be included in the kingdom of Jesus. And this also means that this is good news for the whole world. You see, it impacts our lives right now and today. We must tell the world the good news that there is a king who has come for them. No matter where they live, no matter the people group that they belong to, no matter their language, Jesus came for them. And we have to tell them that. See, being a part of Jesus' kingdom means we serve the mission of the king, which is to take the message of salvation to all the peoples of the world so that all the peoples of the world will bow to him as king so that the true king of all kings will receive what he alone is worthy of, the obedience of all the peoples of the world. King Jesus is the eternal king of the nations. Jesus, church, is the king that we all need. Let me give you the third statement about this king of all kings, Jesus Number three, King Jesus is the beautiful provider of abundant life. King Jesus is the beautiful provider of abundant life. You remember the first problem we said of us being king or queen was our inability to conquer the enemy. The second problem was the reality that our reign would be cut short by our death. Now let's consider that third problem, which was that our rule would be compromised by wickedness. If we were king or queen, our rule would be compromised by wickedness. A good king would act righteously and justly in every way so as to promote peace, which then leads to an abundance of resources and thus life for the citizens of his kingdom. But as we've said, we have we have this built in inability. We are descended from Adam. It is is, affected every single person that's descended from Adam. Uh, We have this built in inability. It's called sin. This inability to provide peaceful abundance because of this indwelling wickedness and sin that's in our hearts, which promotes disunity and destruction. We're born sinners. We make sinful choices and sin always leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to life. Definitely not an abundance of life. Our rule would be compromised by our wickedness. But apparently what is true of us is not true of this coming king spoken of in Genesis chapter 49. The picture being painted of this king from the tribe of Judah shifts to a vineyard in verses 11 through 12. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What in the world does that mean? What are we talking about here? What's God talking about here? Well, look at the first part about the donkey's colt being tied to the choice vine. You see that? Tying your donkey to the choice vine is normally a really bad idea. Why is that? Well, because the donkey is likely to eat the choice vine or at the very least rip it up and trample it. That's not what you tie the donkey to or the donkey's colt. It's going to destroy it. Choice vines are a valuable resource. You don't want to foolishly waste it. It's not like the world is just covered with choice vines which yield fruit fit for a king. 
But what if it was? What if... What if the world was full of choice vines? What if there was an abundance of choice vines? What if there were so many choice vines that if a donkey ate some of them, we'd never even notice? If that was the case, then maybe we would tie our donkey to one of the choice vines, right? Friend, that's the kind of kingdom that's being described here. The picture being painted of this kingdom of the eternal king is one where there is an abundance of resources which provide life and sustenance. And because it's an eternal king, it's going to be life and sustenance forever and ever and ever. Now notice the second half of verse 11. The picture here um, could be one of two things. It could be uh, of wine being so plentiful that it's being used to wash clothes with. It's just being used like water. To wash clothes with. That could be the picture that's being painted where it says he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Or it could be a picture of pressing the grapes in the wine press, which would normally result in the juice from the grapes splashing on your clothing. But in this kingdom, there's so many grapes that the pressing of the grapes results not just in a splashing of the garments, but in a soaking of the garments because there is just so much Either way, the picture is one of incredible life-giving abundance. The king in Genesis 49 is reigning in such a way that his kingdom is full of abundant life. He is a good king. He is a righteous king, a perfect king. He never makes decisions which lead to destruction or poverty, but only decisions which lead to fruitfulness and life. And this abundance of resources really reminds us of the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world, resulting in creation being cursed. You know, once creation was cursed, remember the ground began to produce thorns and there would be floods and famines and other disasters that would destroy harvest and lead to a lack of resources rather than a never ceasing abundance. But in the kingdom of this promised king, the curse has been removed. Sin has been done away with and now the ground only produces abundant life. And then we look at verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This could be another reference to the abundance of the kingdom. The wine has darkened the eyes and the milk of the land has whitened the teeth of a king. So it could mean that or it could be a description of the beauty of the king. We see examples all throughout scripture of of a person's physical beauty being compared to um, things in creation, in the created world. And that's the analogy used to describe how beautiful that person is. And so if we go with that interpretation, then what we have being painted for us in verses 11 through 12 is the picture of a beautiful king who ushers in a reign of abundant life. A beautiful king who ushers in a reign of abundant life. Friends, in a world that is full of sin and death, how good is that good news? A beautiful king who ushers in a reign of abundance life. The prophets looked ahead to this day of abundance. The prophet Joel prophesied of a day when, quote, the threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. The prophet Amos prophesied of a day when, quote, the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What Genesis 49 reveals is that a king from the tribe of Judah would be the one who would usher in this long awaited reign of abundant life. This king would defeat sin through his perfect life and sacrificial death. This king would take us back, in effect, to to the world of Genesis 1, 2, where there was no sin, but there was only 
only life, except that he was not going to take us just back to that world. He's going to take us to a world where there is no serpent in the garden, right? A city where Satan has been cast out of and bound up forever and ever and ever. King Jesus is the beautiful provider of abundant life. Church, Jesus is the king we all need. It leads me to ask this question. If Jesus is the king we all need, then how come everyone didn't bow down to him when he came? If that's who Jesus is, how come John chapter 1 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him? Perhaps it's because Jesus' first coming looked nothing like what we see described in Genesis chapter 49. He came and he didn't appear to conquer any enemies. In what appeared to be great weakness, he hung in what seemed to be great defeat upon a cross built for criminals. It doesn't look like a conquering king. He came and he didn't appear to be a king at all, right? He was born to poor parents and had a feeding trough for a crib. As an adult, he had a ragtag group of followers, not, nothing that we would describe as a kingdom. He definitely didn't appear to be an eternal king as his dead body was laid in a borrowed tomb. And he didn't seem to be a global king, seeing as how he never even traveled outside the land of Israel while he was here on this earth. He came and he didn't appear to be a beautiful provider of abundant life. Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And as he traveled from town to town, often with no place even to lay his head, doesn't look like a provider of abundant life. Not only did he not tie his colt to the choice vine, he didn't even own a colt. He had to borrow one when he rode into Jerusalem on one. It wasn't even his. That doesn't sound like a king who can provide abundant life. And yet there were clues, right? There were clues that this man from Nazareth called Jesus was more than just a man. He was born to a virgin who was told by an angel that she would give birth to all to, to the king of all kings. Maybe the fact that he was born to a virgin points to the fact that he wasn't descended from Adam, right? And he wouldn't be infected with sin. And then what did that angel say to Mary? Angel, the angel Gabriel in Luke 1 said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And notice what the angel tells, tells Mary. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. Where did David come from? Judah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus was born then. He grew up. He did things like turn water into wine. Whoa, isn't that what we've kind of been talking about? He, he did things like multiply food. He did things like heal the sick and raise the dead. Perhaps this was the king who would bring abundant life. But then he died, right? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Then he died on the cross. There's nothing powerful or kingly or life-giving about that, right? Wrong. You see, in God's plan, the line of the tribe of Judah would come first to be a sacrificial lamb. He would die in our place for our sins so that the curse of sin would be lifted from us and we could be reconciled back to God. The death of Christ was powerful. It was powerful to save us from the enemy. The death of Christ was the kingliest thing a righteous and loving king could do to lay down his own life for the salvation of his people. The death of Jesus was was life giving as it removed from us the very thing that leads to our eternal death. And that is our sin. 
But then we have to remember that Jesus didn't stay dead, right? We mentioned this several times. We have to keep this before us. He rose from the dead. Jesus conquered the very things that make us inadequate to be our own kings and queens. He conquered Satan and death and sin. But friends, that was just his first coming. That was just his first coming. He's coming back. And when he comes back, I want to tell you, God's word says that he's not coming back as a little helpless baby in a manger. But he's coming back riding on a white horse ready to strike down his enemies. He will come with a host of heaven ready to set up his kingdom. He will come ready to gather to him all of his people from every nation and language and tribe to dwell in the new heaven and new earth where there will be abundant life forever and ever. Our kingdom will be conquered by the enemy, but not the kingdom of Jesus, for he has defeated Satan. Our reign would be cut off by death, but not Jesus reign because he has defeated death. And our rule would be compromised by wickedness, but not the rule of Jesus because he has defeated sin. In the words of the angel in Revelation five, weep no more. Weep no more. Why? Behold, the angel says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, for he has conquered. Jesus is the king of all kings. Jesus is the king we all need. So let me ask you, is he your king today? Is he your king today? Stop being your own king or queen, friend. You can't do it. I can't do it. We can't do for ourselves what King Jesus has done for us. He has defeated Satan and death and sin, which means he can save you from Satan, death and sin. And so will you, if you have not already done so, turn from your sinful rebellion today and receive the free gift of salvation that comes from this promised king? You must repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus, trusting that what he did through his death and resurrection is enough to save you. If you have believed in Jesus, let me let me remind you, let me remind me that we don't belong simply to a babe in a manger. We belong to a mighty warrior, victorious, eternal king of the nations. He is worthy of every single area of our lives. He is worthy of our time and our money and all of our resources and our talents. He is worthy of our obedience to his commandment to make known the good news of his kingdom to all the world. He is worthy of our lives, church. God's promise of salvation centers upon a global king. He is the victorious conqueror of the enemy. He is the eternal king of the, of the nations. And he is the beautiful provider of abundant life for all who believe in him. If you want salvation, then you have to have this king. And if you have salvation, then your life will be centered upon this king of all kings. So one more time, who is your king today? I pray, church, I pray, friends, that it is the true king, the lion of Judah, King Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Maybe today you have been living your life as your own king or queen. Maybe you've been pretending that your life is submitted to Jesus, but it's, been a, it's just been a, a fake. It's just been a show. Maybe right now you need to submit to King Jesus today. 
If that's you, would you just confess to Jesus that you are a sinner? He already knows you are, but you have to agree with Him on that. And then would you ask Him to save you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good King Jesus is? Would you believe in this moment in Jesus to save you? His death and resurrection to provide you with everlasting life. Maybe you have trusted in Jesus. He is your king, but maybe there's an area of your life where you haven't been living as though he were the king. Would you confess that sin, whatever that sin or those sins are to the Lord right now? Would you ask for God's help to live submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus in your life? Father, thank You for Your Word. May we obey. For to King Jesus belongs the obedience of all the peoples. And God, may we celebrate. May we celebrate this King of all kings. May we overflow with joy and gratitude, and excitement that we have the King that we need. That He has come for us. And He's coming again one day. God, we celebrate King Jesus. And in His name we pray. Amen.